In early 2024, Stephen McAlpine visited Bathurst Presbyterian Church to talk about the culture we live in and why it can be tricky to live openly for Jesus, but also why we have great opportunities to invite people to discover Jesus. We had some technical difficulties just with the first 20 seconds or so of uh, Steve's presentation, but we pick it up very early on with Steve talking about the challenge of talking openly about our faith, and he quotes Mike Tyson. People who think things philosophically, so I thought I'd quote a great philosopher, Mike Tyson. He said, everyone's got a plan until they get a punch in the face, right? Um, and what he was saying was, you know, he was asked on the day he was going to fight Evander Holyfield, have you got a plan for Evander Holyfield? He says, everyone's got a plan until they get a punch in the mouth, right? And I think that's often the way we feel with evangelism. I've got an idea of how, if someone asks me a Jesus question, surely they're going to ask me this way and I'll be able to answer this way. I've got this narrative in my mind. But often you get a punch in the mouth. You think, how do I answer that? You Christians, you think this, you're this phobic or that phobic or you've got this issue about that or look at the, all these other issues that the church has done and you're going, I feel like I'm defending the indefensible already and I'm on the back foot. I feel like I'm waiting for the, the right conditions where someone comes up to me and says, hey, by the way, what must, what must I do to be saved? You go, can we get to there? <laughs> but it feels like you've got to go through this tangled... Incidentally, when I'm sitting on planes, I put on my headphones. I'm not your, I'm your sort of tired, grumpy, post-event person. And if someone shakes me on the shoulder and wants to talk, you know, I'm not that evangelist guy, I'm probably not that. If the plane's going down like this and they say, what must I do to be saved, I'll, you know, throw them two ways to live track and then put my headphones back on. But um, it, it always feels like you're always a step away from a conversation that's a closing deal. But how do I have those conversations about Jesus when it always feels hostile? And it always feels hostile because of situations like this. Did anyone remember this story? David Koch, Guy Mason from Sydney and a Hill Church in Melbourne. Oh, that's right, this is Sydney, the real football. I forgot about that. And Andrew Thorburn, who was Chief Executive Officer of Essendon Football Club for how many days? One. Because as a public Christian, the journalist did some journalism. <laughs> and it came up that he went to Guy Mason's church, and 10 years ago, Guy Mason's church had sermons about end of life, start of life, sexuality, that would not align with you being the CEO of a modern day football club. And um, he, within a day he was gone. And Guy came, was invited onto David Koshu's show. And uh, Guy had been on David Koshu's show before when they were meeting in a pub as a church. And it was kind of a puff piece. Here's this funky urban church with a guy whose haircut's way too sharp with a little bit of a beard. And they're doing church in a pub. And, oh. and David Koch literally filled a bag full of pennies and whacked him over the head in this interview. And I, I used to watch um, Doctor Who when I was a kid, when it was scary. And I'd be like this behind the couch, you know, when the music comes on. You know. That's what it felt like watching this. Because Guy comes on and David Koch ambushes him. So your church has got all these sermons about sexuality and about this and how can you believe that stuff in the modern world? And Guy was 
Jesus is all about life and love. And, and what David Koch heard was, Jesus, womp, 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 you know, that's what he heard. And so when Guy was saying Jesus is all about life and love, that is a very good slogan for your church evangelistic campaign this year. But the minute you put it into the public square, people are asking hard questions. But you don't love this way these people live. You don't love this. You're not about life. And what about the... And it was an ambush. And you're sitting in your lounge watching that going, if the best of the best get like that, what happens tomorrow at work? Or what, how about me? Now, the interesting thing about that, which is probably encouraging, is that Sunday, lots of people turned up at this church, right? Who were... But lots of journalists did as well. And you realise that the gap between what people think Christians think are like, or what they're like, and how Christians are, is massive. And the journalists, I was reading the papers the next day after these journalists had all gone to the church on the Sunday to see it, and it said things like, they turn up to church in hipster clothing and drinking good coffee and wearing, you know, good shoes and... I said, what are they expecting? Buggies and carts with half beards and Amish? You know, like, it feels like the gap between what we are like and what people think we are like is absolutely massive. And so if you want to get to the Jesus conversations, it feels you've got a lot of territory to traverse with people who have no experience of church or as a negative experience of church. Always feels like that. It always feels like you've got a plan until you get a punch in the mouth. And it's kind of what happened to Guy. And you think, if the hippest, coolest, urbanist Christian gets that experience, what's going to be mine? And I want us to hold that thought. And a lot of the issues that we're dealing with are around, people will ask us, what about identity? What does it mean to be a human? About sexuality? All these questions are coming. We think, I just want to cut to the Jesus bit. Can I get there? And they go, no, 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 no. Here, I'm going to run the gloriometer over you to test where you're at on these things to determine whether I'm going to give you a hearing. That's often the way it is today. And in one sense, the dinosaur question isn't the question anymore. You know what I mean by the dinosaur question back in the 80s? Do you believe in dinosaurs? Yeah. Well, then I can listen to you. Now we are the dinosaurs, right? Uh, but no one's asking the dinosaur question, well, very few, to test you first whether you can have a hearing about the other stuff you believe to get to Jesus. More than likely, the question is, what do you believe about sexuality? What do you believe about what it, all those sorts of identity, meaning and purpose around the human body question? They're just what people are asking. It just is. And that's the dividing watershed, whether they're going to give you hearing or not, often. And it's complex. And it would be easy to think, perhaps we need to park all that stuff and never talk about it. But you can't do that if someone comes up to you and asks you that question. You go, well, first, give, let me tell you about this. Because you know it's lurking. And that's the space we have to navigate. And it's the big question of our culture for our church in one sense. Trevin Wax, who writes for the Gospel Coalition, said in the early centuries of the church, the questions that troubled Christians were about Jesus. Was he truly human, truly man? How do we put those two things together? And then in the later medieval era, it was about how you're made right with God. 
Is it the Catholic Church? Is it Mass? Is it the sacraments? Is it the priest? And all those, boom. He said, today, the questions are around what it means to be a human being. What's the meaning and purpose of life? And he said, we're facing a third major crisis. This time, the focus is on anthropology. What it means, what humanness. The nature and destiny of humankind. Now, at one point, you're going, yeah, this is going to be hard. But at another point, you're going, the Bible has something to say about that. The Bible has a lot to say about that. What is a human being? What does it mean to be made in God's image, to be created male and female? Do we receive our identity and purpose or do we create identity and meaning for ourselves? We know the answer to that because we sang it. You almost sang it unthinkingly. Who do you belong to? Christ alone, in life and death. All right. But this is a you-do-you culture. You belong to yourself, not us. Together we belong to Christ alone, in life and death. Worldview, <laughs> worldview, Grand Canyon in the middle. <laughs> and those are the things we're having to navigate with people. How do we do it? And part of the water we swim in is that you-do-you you culture. And in one sense, that's been 400 years in the making, French philosophy. But most people aren't giving you the French philosophy answer as to why Christianity is wrong. You're, they're giving you the frozen Disney answer as to why it's wrong. It's look into your heart, be true to yourself. And the world has shifted from being what some, uh, this guy, Dale Kuhn, calls the I world is the current world versus the T world or the traditional world. And he says, sorry the screen's so far away and the words are so small in this one. Personal relational choice is replacing the T world's relational matrix as the preferred path to human freedom and fulfilment. The T world is re being replaced by the I world. And what he meant by the T world was how we did life and relationships in a more traditional setting was about relationships of mutual obligation. How we did marriage. We, and in, in more traditional worlds than ours even, where people have arranged marriages, you broke those very carefully and not without a lot of trouble. But in the I world, it's about personal choice. Relationships are personal choice. They're not about what other people think. And even marriage is therefore reduced to the right romantic partner who will fulfill you. Every movie says that. Every movie that's set in 1500 says that, even though 1500 people would never think that. We read those things back into even our history that we do have. So you have this, when you're talking to people about Jesus, T-world people are very different to I-world people. Which is why Chinese students on a university campus can be very open to a conversation about someone they've never heard of, Jesus, from a much more traditional framework world. Whereas white, secular Westerners from good suburbs are automatically assuming that they set the agenda for their lives and they will come and explore this Christian thing perhaps 
that's sort of a bit passe and by the way. Very different worlds. Incidentally, the tea world is actually coming to Australia in droves. So it gives us great evangelistic opportunity. Another philosopher poet of our age is Taylor Swift. Apparently she's here. Apparently the airport's going to be blocked tomorrow afternoon when I try to go home. Good thing I've got a private jet. No, I don't have a private jet. <laughs> um, if you don't think she speaks for thousands or hundreds of millions of young people in what she espouses, then you're living under a rock because she gave the commencement address at New York University in 2022. And she said this, how do I give advice to this many people about their life choices? I won't. Scary news is you're on your own now. Cool news is you're on your own now. Very interesting to the most wealthy, well-educated people on the planet. You're on your own. But she said two things about that. It's cool news. You do you. That's the gospel of our age, right? And it's cool news. There are no restrictions on you outside of consent. The only thing that buffers you from doing what you want to do with yourself or someone else at the moment is consent, pretty much. And that's the world we live in. We just live in that kind of world. And here we are singing, I don't belong to myself. <laughs> that'll, that'll never fly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So you come in here every Sunday and you go, out there, the world is a very different framework. And I come in here to be recalibrated as a Christian to go back out there where I'm going to get a punch in the mouth again. You know? <laughs> Even if it's not an actual one, it just feels like the flow against you is... How can this possibly be true? There's a discipleship program in here that wants to grow you as a Christian and send you out to share the gospel in a world in which the discipleship program is the opposite way. It's not your discipleship program versus nothing. It's this discipleship program that says this is the path to true freedom and flourishing and hope versus this is the path. And there's a lot of money in this one. And they look much cooler than us. Well, some of you. Um, and we kind of think, well, when you give up on Jesus in this culture, it's going to be a zombie apocalypse. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> and I go to Sydney enough and I stay in an apartment and I look down and Sydney, well, that zombie apocalypse looks okay. You know, it doesn't look awful. And it feels like that discipleship program, here we're seeing people become Christian, but here we're seeing an exit strategy of especially some of our younger people who just don't buy into what the gospel says about the human body or, or their friends or their, they feel it's let them down. Always feels like that. Rory Shiner, I said this this morning, this is, where is it? This is not Rory Shiner, but this is a picture of the guy from Frozen. The you do you thing technically is called expressive individualism. I discover who I am and I express that to the world. And if you don't like that or you challenge it, you're kind of doing violence to me. So you feel like if I want to share Jesus with someone and they ask what that means about my life, punch in the mouth. And Rory said this, 
were not argued into expressive individualism, were formed into it. To live in modern Australia is to be a part of a relentless discipleship program. Every Pixar and Disney film, every graduation speech, every new novel and Netflix series is 100% on point. Your purpose in life is to find the true inner you and then to express that to the world. God is framed out. True. Now, if you lived in Bathurst before the days of this, you know, or you lived anywhere that was further away from the main centres of culture and cultural production, if you didn't live in Manhattan, ideas in Manhattan would take hold eventually. Right? When do ideas in Manhattan take hold today? Today. Because <laughs> of technology. So you're grappling with a system in which a lot of information is coming quickly to people from the centres of cultural change, from the places that are most hostile to Christianity and where things like this kind of drain your discipleship program on this side and build your discipleship program up on this side. Algorithms. And you could read books that then and then Amazon will suggest to you books that are more like the books that you did read which confirms you in your position. Those are the sorts of things we deal with all of the time. God is framed out. And you go out into the street or work tomorrow going, my role in life is to frame God in, in a world that constantly frames him out. That's complex. It's hard to do. Another quote, a bit of a wordy quote. In Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he says, the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary, I say that all the time, no. Um, that just means the water we swim in. What feels real? What feels possible? Prioritises victimhood. So he's saying that if you're going to share the gospel with people, they go, how about that church, hey? You trod down a lot of people. You go, oh, it wasn't me personally. You can't even say that because it just sounds like you're making excuses, right? It, the voices that were on the edge of the culture and the margins are dialed up. And the voices that were at the centre of the culture are told, can you be quiet for a while? That's the way it feels. And guess what? The church was at the centre of the culture. Maybe not everyone was Christian, but they were not Christian in a kind of Christian way. And this building is in the middle of town. That's not going to happen again with new towns being built, by the way. They're not going to go, let's put it, four churches down the main street, Catholic, Presbyterian, Anglican and Methodist. Keep everyone happy. <laughs> That's not happening. Again, it's not going to happen. But it sees uh, the, the, the social imaginary, the, the water we swim in, sees so, selfhood in psychological terms. The true you is your inner you. And it's kind of separate from your physical you. Before you, you might see this amazing sort of gym-built guy. Now you see a runner, right? So skinny arms, you know. But inside I know who I truly am and it could be the opposite of that. That is just assumed. And who you truly are inside is what you should express to the world. 
whether your physicality demonstrates that or not. It's a very different shift in our cultural moment. It regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, hello Guy Mason, and places a premium on the individual's rights to define his or her own existence. Now there are some chinks in the armour. We live in a very anxious age. Social anxiety, like not just individuals feeling anxious, but the it feels like there's something in the water that Western culture feels very shaky. There's a lot going on and people are nervous. And the book is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, but I think it's more like the failure of the modern self. But it's been propped up. It took the pandemic for us to realise that you always feel about two weeks away from absolute chaos, right? Toilet paper, anyone? I'm sure there's someone in here who's got a garage full of it, but they're too ashamed to say. Um, we're fragile. We're fragile. For all of the pushback and the punch in the mouth, if people come at you hard against Christianity, they haven't got a plan B. They've got a plan A, go hard, and once you start to deconstruct some of those things, People's thinking and frameworks aren't very robust. You have no idea how well thought out the average Christian is about how life is put together compared to most people. They just haven't thought through those things. I, say this, I said this in the first session. My daughter is at Notre Dame, a university in Perth doing literature and history, and she did a theological diploma before she went in. And I said to her, guarantee if you're doing literature and a lot of medieval literature you will get HDs and everyone else will be scratching around to get a credit because you understand God and medieval literature can't be understood without God and modern people don't have a framework for God they just don't know how to put him in somewhere whereas medieval people assumed him and now you have to work to get him a, you know, to get him a hearing. And if you were a decided in 1500, I'm going to become an atheist, you would live a very lonely life for the rest of your life. But if you're here today and you decide tomorrow you want to become an atheist, there's a whole good news story to that that the culture will welcome you into. Once I was blind, now I see. Once I was lost, and now I'm found. It's an anti-gospel. If you want to chuck all Christianity away and live a you-do-you life with whoever you want to, there's somebody to celebrate that for you. That has not been the case for most of history or for most of Christianity. That's the water we swim in. Now, I told you a bit about the bad life in the sense of, you know, the more extremes of it, but it's probably the case that most people don't want to punch you in the mouth. They just don't care. I, I, I'd rather people were more hostile sometimes than just blasé. A lot of people are blasé. But I think this hostility that we're seeing is actually an opportunity for us to lean into because when I was at school as a kid, I went, you know, 
you're a lame if you were a Christian. I was lame because I was, there could have been other reasons, but I blamed it on Christianity. Yeah. Um, but I know young people that have had to keep their heads down at school because to be a Christian is to be seen as a bigot. How do they, how do they navigate that? But Jill and I went for our holidays to a place called Mindari Keys in Perth, just north of Perth, the year before last. That's the view from the balcony. It was one of those places that didn't exist 20 years ago in Perth. And suddenly, you know, multi-million dollar houses spring up. See the rocks at the top with a, I mean, the keys bit, you know, sort of it's got a marina. It's nice and quiet there. There's lots on this, this side of it. There'd be shops and cafes and pubs and all sorts of things. Lots of beautiful houses. Lots of English accents. And people who think they've found heaven on a stick. Mindari from England. And, but on, and it's beautiful. That's the good life. And one night on a holiday, we went down to the, the, the pub to buy a meal, and it was heaving. It was a beautiful Perth day. Thousands of people around. And I just looked around, and I said to Jill, I wonder if anyone here even remotely cares about Jesus or gives them a second thought. Because they don't need to. Life just looks good. That's Australia. Everyone wants to craft a Mindari Keys life. It's the good life. And the good life is more likely to take people away from Jesus or than anything. We keep thinking whatever's happening in Sydney in two weeks' time is the, the thing. It's not. It's the good life. Leave me alone. Life's okay. But there is a chink in that armour. And really, the, the rocks are the, are the hint. We went to Mindari, and even summer, the ocean is, on the other side of those rocks, is pounding the rocks. The westerly off that ocean is so strong that you barely use the front door. You come in the garage and go, because the door is literally pushing you in the face. And the beach has signs, do not swim here. We had to go down to another beach. It was way too rough. Every day. Though the marina looked like that every day. That, in one sense, everyone's living a life like that, ignoring God and getting on with having a good time. Until the wind and the waves crash over the top of Mindari Marina occasionally and suffering or despair or loss or death washes things away. So that means everyone, basically, at some stage in their life. And it struck me, and I don't want to theologise my holiday too much, but I am going to theologise it in the sense that I looked at that and I went, that's us in Australia. Let's craft as much comfort as we can and buffer ourselves from anything bad and then something bad happens. And those are times in our lives and the lives of other people where they start to ask questions. It can't all be about pleasure. It can't all be about this life. And even the most hostile people might come and ask you, what's with your life? Not because you're immune from suffering, but because as Christians we respond to it differently. 
We grieve, but not as those without hope. You've no way of knowing what someone is going to ask you, and that's when you're prepared to give an answer for it to it. It's what happens. And I told this story this morning, and I wish I didn't have to tell it in some respect. A girl I worked with in Christian radio years ago just eventually just chucked Christianity away. She and her husband were good friends to me, a few years older than me, and I really looked up to them when I was younger. She eventually left her husband for someone she was in a theatre troupe with, and they moved to Queensland, and they've got this amazing life where she's manifesting this and speaking these things into her life and a cruise life and all this life. And he's still a Christian in the north, uh, a couple of hours north of Perth, living for Jesus, but it's been a struggle. And her Facebook feed every day, I still keep in touch with her, because I, I remember when she got in touch with me again, and I asked her, are you still a Christian? And she said, I've got a faith. Okay, <laughs> punch in the mouth, right? Well, that's like back off, right? <laughs> and I just watched. And it's the universe going to manifest good things to you. And in the paper on the weekend, there was a story in the West of a mum driving home from Geraldton with her two little kids, twin girls, and she crashed into a tree and both girls were killed. And it's their grandkids. And Phil is heartbroken. And Lisa, who Facebooks post 20 things a day, had just two little hearts against the black background and then just silence for five days. The universe isn't going to manifest anything there. Devastating. And Phil's a Christian and he didn't avoid the suffering. Just seeing his response has been a bit different. It's in those moments, right? That C.S. Lewis says that God whispers in our pleasures but shouts in our sufferings or pain. God's pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And you don't know when someone is going to come up to you in a painful time. And it doesn't mean that you're going to give them, well, sort it out with Jesus and sort It means that they're going to think there's something about the way you live and the way your life is and what hope you have that seems different, that smells different to my hope because my hope is very fragile. I don't have one in life and death. I've got one in the Mindari life and if that goes, it's over. And the older I get, the more I realise that that didn't, we didn't get rid of that idea at the age of 40 and then start to live sensibly. <laughs> Anyone with me on that? We have great opportunities. I think it's never been more open. In our cultural moment, the scary news. Look at the world. Ukraine. Gaza, pandemic, climate, take your top pick. There's a deep anxiety in our cultural moment. Uh, my wife is a clinical psychologist and during a, an exceptionally exciting race during the delayed Tokyo Olympics, she decided to chat to me about where life's going. And, you know, still love her. Um, and she said, Anxiety is the gold medal of the Mental Health Olympics. 
not just personal anxiety, but a wide, generalised anxiety. Where are we going? Never seen so many people coming through her clinic that are anxious and can't articulate why. I think that's... And look, we can be anxious. I'm not saying Christians aren't anxious. We've got somewhere to go to when we are. And that can be a psychologist as well as <laughs> coming to church and prayer and Bible and knowing that your hope is in Christ and the Christian community is going to support you. But if you didn't... Can you imagine not having that? Can you just imagine not having that and living on a roller coaster? Where's it going next? Those are the questions people want to know. Where is it going next? Here's the secret. You know where it's going to end up, don't you? Because Jesus died on the cross and rose again and ascended to heaven and is ruling and is going to return and bring about a new creation. You know the story. And in one sense, if we want to share Jesus with people, we don't want to just have a plug-and-play little story about it. We want to say, oh, and this is where, we, where I think Bible teaching is going to be critical in your churches, the big picture of what God is doing in the world, where it started, what the problem is, Genesis 3, <laughs> Genesis 1, two, the story of God's people, their failures, their sin, his deliverer, the loss of hope in, the, in the, the tomb and the resurrection and the hope to come. Think of your non-Christian friends who don't believe that. I have an identical twin brother. Yeah, two of them. <laughs> My poor mum, because he was as much a wallflower as I am. And he's not a Christian. Been married three times, got four kids. He lives in Kirribilli, probably tells you he's doing okay. But guess what? We're both 57. And I think about the fact that one day I'm going to die and this will end. And I don't know if he thinks about that or wants to. And, and that's the thing I think more than anything as Christians having a great grasp of the gospel hope in your own life, it starts to ooze out of you. It starts to shape the decisions you make. Because my brother, we've peaked, right? I'm a runner and I've peaked, I realise that much. I'm still holding on for a grim death. But um, Everything else, there's less ahead of me. Could be a day. Those treacherous mountain passes might do me in on the way back to the airport tomorrow. Who knows? But it will end. And we don't like to think about that. Our friends don't like to think about that. We have a great gospel hope. And people are looking at the, that and going, what if in the next 50 years it's harder in Australia? What if we're less wealthy? What if our kids can't? To all those sorts of questions. And by 2054, you'll start to see the trends that are now really embed themselves, I think. But let me tell you some evangelistic, <laughs> some hope, right? So we go to 
Providence Church in Perth, which has got three churches in a network. And I planted one of them, and, and I'm not the pastor there anymore, but two years ago, so Rory Shiner, some of you may know, is the lead team leader. So every year we have a, a get-together at Swan Christian College, where my church plant met. And there'd be 800 of us by now, and it's party and food and, you know, Vanity Fair on the lawns and, you know, people selling their wares. We don't have tarot cards or anything like that. Um, great church service, communion together, the A team playing the music, you know. Um, all the sad B team sitting on the side. Oh, no, that's not, not that bad. It's always encouraging. 800 people from very different backgrounds getting together. And my friend Ollie, uh, who I haven't seen for a while, I've known him for 30 years, lived in England with him, he goes to one of the congregations. And he works as the, um, he's the head of all the interior design for Westfields shopping centres. And he bowls up to me and he says, I want you to meet someone. I want you to meet Claire. Claire, 40-ish, maybe 30, late 30s, young woman, sort of hip and urban looking, Western lady. She's just become a Christian. Went, oh, you know, I scanned, not a Chinese national student. I'm a trailer park lady, you know. Doesn't look sub-Saharan African to me. She's just become a Christian. <gasps> a newbie, you know, crazy. And so I said, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, how did that happen? You know, because <laughs> you shouldn't become a Christian. Look at you. You're a middle-class, well-to-do, creative industry. She worked for him. He was her boss. Her husband and kids were there. They weren't Christian, but they came to church. You shouldn't become Christian. People like you don't become Christians. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I said, so how? She said, oh, look, I, I've been asking, thinking a lot about, there's got to be more to life than this. And she said, I'm working with Ollie and pandemic's coming up and then we're going through that and people are getting laid off and he just doesn't seem to be anxious about it in a way that everyone else is anxious about it. And then I said, she's thinking, oh, what's going on? And she said to him... So what, tell me about your life. Of course, he mentions church. And she says, he's a Christian. And she says, he reads the Bible. She said, you read the Bible? He said, yeah. he said, do you think I could read the Bible? Yeah, you could read the Bible. So gives, gives her a Bible. And then she comes in and asks questions over the coming months about that Bible. Uh, and he says, do you think I can come to church? Yeah, you can come to church. She goes to church. She hears the gospel. She becomes a Christian. Just like that. Not meeting in a pub, not doing funky Uber church anywhere else, just stock standard church, here's the gospel, gets converted. And I was like, wow. I shouldn't have been, should I? Because that's what God does. And then I thought, I used to be a journalist, so I thought I'd ask her some hard journalistic questions. What does it feel like? I said. <laughs> and she said, it feels light. Like a burden has rolled off me. Right. There's a Sankey's revivalist in from the 50s that couldn't be more cliched than that. That's amazing. So she felt the experience of something was weighing me down and I don't know what it was and I went on the search and it feels like a burden's rolled off me. So that's interesting. I said, what else does it feel like? Great second follow-up journalistic question. And she said, it feels like I don't need the approval of other people anymore because Jesus approves of me. That's amazing. Now, of course, somewhere along the line she had to confess with her mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in her heart that God raised him from the dead, confess her sin. 
But the two presenting issues in her life where there's something wrong and I don't know what it is, because it shouldn't be. I'm a white Western creative who's doing well in life, but something's lacking. And in this world where you're told to you do you, every one of us is looking for approval from somewhere. And in this world, it's usually from other people who can condemn you at the drop of a hat. And God sorted that out. So those were the presenting psychological issues that were presenting the underpinning issue of something is wrong. I don't... And she became a Christian. And she's one of those new Christians that figures that you should probably pray for all your friends all the time and speak to them about Jesus, you know. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was a significant thing, that both... Ollie was the non-anxious guy who was ready to go with her at the pace she was asking in an industry in which to be a Christian is quite transgressive. But over the years she'd seen the way he lived his life and even though she previously didn't agree with him, there was something about it that was compelling. But also that Ollie was prepared then to say, here's a Bible, come to church. Don't say no for people. Let them say no for themselves. Probably say it for people. Don't go around saying, oh, you don't want to become a Christian. But really, you haven't asked me. Don't say no for people. Don't assume you're always going to get a punch in the mouth. There are plenty of people living a, a wave has swamped my Mindari key life. And then that approval thing. We've grown up in a culture where everyone gets a trophy. Yet how much approval is enough? A little bit more. And we've grown up in a world that says you do you, but we live our lives before everyone else. Performance. And the gospel is that God knows you better than you know yourself. And I don't like that idea. (laughs) But loves you more than you could possibly believe. And that liberates you, like Ollie, to be not anxious at work and to share the gospel even if people would reject it. The main thing you need to do to share the gospel isn't just know the gospel really, really well for other people. It's to be so convinced of it yourself that your primary audience is the Lord, that you have his approval, that you don't need, even if someone does reject you, you will still hear on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Everyone's looking for that now. We can hold that off. Now that does not mean to say it is not hard. But that is the reality of it. And what your churches, our churches are going to do in the next 30 years is equip us, encourage us, warm us, train us, to send us out to do it, to love and serve the Lord. Yeah, back at the Anglican service at communion, it says, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Not to gain his approval, but because you've got it. You can serve very differently when the approval thing's locked away. You can share the gospel very clearly when the approval thing's locked away. I think that's a critical thing for us as Christians. I'll flip ahead to another story. 
Did I tell you I run? Runners, you, you, you don't need to ask a runner, they'll tell you. You don't need to ask a vegan if they're a vegan, they'll tell you. And vegan runners are insufferable, I'll tell you that. Now this symbol that looks like the um, Belgrave, uh, Belgrade Freedom Fighters Red Brigade symbol is a running club that I sort of belong to in Perth. I belong to a couple. TSRC, Tony Smith. He's a few years younger than me, a gun runner, trains a lot of elites. Tony Smith Run Club. And I belong to another run club called the Big Table Run Club because it belongs to a church called the Big Table Church. And guess what it meets around? Yeah, come on, Einstein's. Big Table, right? The guy who runs it, the Big Table Run Club is a Christian. Tony's not. The guy who runs Big Table Run Club was an elite runner as a young person. He's incredibly gifted. And it's a mix of Christians and non-Christians. It's got a different vibe to it. And then Tony starts his run club, and see, there's a girl there. I don't know if I've got a... I don't have a pointer in this. Maybe I do. Oh, no, I don't. Um, in the front, called Gillian. And Tony's on the, the far side running. And that's the Optus Stadium in Perth. The only thing that's of any worth in Perth. Uh, coming to Bathurst soon, you're going to get your own stadium, which can fill the whole town. <laughs> um, and Gillian is in both run clubs. And Gillian is a lapsed Irish Catholic. I don't know if you're a lapsed Irish Catholic. But there's no one as anti, there's no one against Christianity as much as a lapsed Irish Catholic, I've determined. Just because they've seen it all. You know, they've come out from Ireland. And one, she's moved here, and then she married her partner who moved with her, and then they've had a little girl. But all her family's back home. Uh, her sister died of. Um, pancreatic cancer, I think, and her mum has uh, a degenerative disease, and she couldn't get back during the pandemic. And the Big Table Run Club and the church associated was very community-oriented, and we were out running, training for a marathon. When you're training for a marathon, you run thousands of kilometres with people, and you get to talking a lot about their lives, a lot. I know you think that's silly, that you can talk while you're running, but you... you in the long run, you slow down and you're fit enough that you can have conversations. And she said this to me just after the pandemic, I envy you Christians. I said, what do you mean you envy us Christians? You're a lapsed Irish Catholic. You should hate us Christians. And she said, during the pandemic, just the way the, the big table just swung into action and the whole Christian community was just able to look after each other. I've never seen that. And I, she said, don't get me wrong, they helped me out too. But she said, it was just like everyone just automatically helped each other. I said, well, what about TSRC? Don't you do that at TSRC? She said, oh, no, it's not the same. It doesn't happen like that. I said, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between your community and my community? She said, oh, I don't know. I said, look, I'll tell you. And that, the run ended. We never, no, we did get to it. We've got another 20 case to go. And I said, at the centre of our community is a culture of forgiveness based on Jesus. That we're no different to anyone else other than we have Jesus. We have the same problems as everyone else. And if we fall out with each other, there's a way back. What happens when you fall out with anyone from... She said, oh, it'll be over. It'll be over. Well, let's test that theory. About a year and a half ago, I get a phone call from 
the TS bit of TSRC, Tony Smith. He used to be a British paratrooper, so he's a tough nut. He's almost in tears. The place is blown apart. People have problems with him. Something happened, and no one will forgive each other. I phoned Gillian. I said, hey, remember that story? <laughs> I can't forgive him. I won't forgive him. Then there's race day in an unforgiving culture. So they hive off and start their own run club. And he's left with the remnants to rebuild. At the start line, over this side, and no one talks to each other. That's all you've got. See, the common feature was running. And at the big table, the common feature was Jesus. Big difference. And she, she saw it. And Tony saw it because he started asking me questions about things. It's, a huge, it's when those sorts of things happen, you see the difference between what the gospel brings to bear and what the world brings to bear. And we've just got to play that up a little bit, I think. Don't be ashamed to lean into the fact that extrapolate where we're headed out for the next 30 years and it's going to be a cold, hard, unforgiving culture. The last book written by Tim Keller was called Forgive. He wrote great things about culture. He wrote amazing things about work. But for me, the most compelling book he wrote was his last book about forgiveness. How could I? Why should I? And how can I? People don't know how to. And they've got no framework for why they should. Why don't I just kick you to the curb and cancel you? Now, of course, we did that in the past, but we did it against the grain of what we knew the gospel had said, even in our culture. Forgiveness was not a virtue before Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy. Do good to those who despise you who put you on their TV shows and bag you out. Something about it. Forgiveness. And part of the reason is that Christianity is so baked into our cultural moment, who we are as Australians and Westerners, that we don't realise it. Tom Holland says, so profound... Now, Tom Holland, not Spider-Man Tom Holland, anyone under 30, I mean the historian Tom Holland... So profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization that it has come to be hidden from view. It is the incomplete revolutions which are remembered. What he means is that Christianity is the water that Westerners have swum in for so long that they don't realize that when it goes away, things like forgiveness are going to go away. Things that look like looking after the weak are going to go away. Things like not ending the life of someone who's mentally ill or homeless, are going to go away. That's what it's going to look like. And people are going to say, there's got to be something more than that. Robert Bella is the guy who came up with the term expressive individualism, and he said, just when we are in many ways moving to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person, our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. 
Everyone says, you can't get a good volunteer in church these days. Try the local clubs to see how they're going with volunteers. Everyone's shrinking away from each other. You fall out with someone and there's no way back. Except here, of course. I hope. I hope. And if it's not, that's where we pray and ask God's forgiveness for not living that way. Because we've been forgiven so much ourselves. Our culture expects if someone does you wrong that you pay out on them. And we're going to step into places where we're going to have a hostile response to the gospel and our reaction cannot be self-defensiveness, anger, pride, self-righteousness. When he was reviled, says Peter, he did not revile. He entrusted himself the one who judges justly. And Peter had form, right? <laughs> he was not the guy who was going, I forgive you. He's the guy that give me a sword and I'll cut off your ear. But something changed. He saw Jesus raised. He was restored to Jesus. Jesus forgave him for denying him. Tim Keller says a forgiving Community. The new shame and honour culture either produces a heavily inquisitorial merit forgiveness approach or leads people to abandon forgiveness altogether. It feels like every, it's not since we left Christianity behind that we don't believe in sinners anymore. It's just a different, just put on to different people. <laughs> you fall afoul on social media and it's a swarm. You get done. We can be a forgiving community. Not because of an abstract idea of forgiveness, but because of Jesus. We don't believe in forgiveness. We believe in Jesus, who's a forgiving God, and therefore we take on forgiveness as our framework. You can't have the fruit of the gospel without the roots of the gospel. In one sense, that's why in all the fog of war, you've got to kind of get to Jesus pretty quickly when you're talking. Glenn Scrivener, anyone know Glenn? Yep, from uh, Canberra boy, made good, lives in England. I was going to say lives in Ballarat, Canberra boy, made good, lives in, in Bathurst. But no, he said, in order to pursue the kingdom without the king, he says that's the framework we live in at the moment. Mark Sayer says this as well. We live in the kind of world that wants the fruit of the gospel without Jesus. We have had to dethrone the person of Christ and install abstract values instead. The problem should be obvious. Persons can forgive you. Values cannot. Values can only judge you. Break one of the values at work and see. Do they bring you into the office and say, I forgive you? It doesn't work that way. And our culture knows it. People are nervous and anxious about it. At the same time, we've got mental health issues. Just under 40% of 16 to 24-year-old Australians, 1.1 million people, reported having a mental disorder in 2021. That's double that of the average Australian adult, 18 to 24-year-olds. The world is your oyster. Well, clearly not. 
major issues going on. And I think that's people are just looking for, you know, I think the next 30 years, meaning and purpose. They're not asking the dinosaur question. They're asking, what's the point of life and what does it mean for the, all those sorts of things. And I've written in my book, Future Proof, perhaps it's no surprise to note that in our increasingly anxious culture, there's a rising sense, even among secular writers, that there's something lacking in society, something that the church seems to offer. Time and time again, we're seeing secular writers saying, oh, leaving Christianity behind has... Hmm. It's done some bad things. Those are good entry points to talk to people because when Christian writers and thinkers are saying it's bad, people dismiss it because they're Christian writers and thinkers. But not everyone... I'm going to flick a few forward. Read this one. A.N. Hirsi Ali, public intellectual, Muslim, became an atheist, started going to church. She's a, a world thinker. And she wrote an article, Why I Have Become a Christian. You know, wow. It's not exactly the zeitgeist as a public intellectual in the world to write an article after you were friends with Richard Dawkins that say, Why I Have Become a Christian. But she looked around the world and went, the thing that has shaped and changed this world more than anything is Jesus. Tom Holland doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But he says the people that did believe in the resurrection of Jesus, those views changed the world, whether or not you believe in the resurrection. He said, I can't help but realise that those values based on Jesus and the hope of the resurrection, transformed the world because pagan Rome wasn't like that. <laughs> Something's different because of Jesus. Of course, I still have a great deal to learn about Christianity. I discover a little more at church each Sunday. Now, I want to say this. Some people come to Jesus or the Jesus question with you because of existential angst. She's come from a different perspective. She's looked at the wider cultural train wreck and said, this can't be right. Something's going wrong. So not everyone will ask you, not everyone coming to you is the same person. And you've got to sort of have your radar on to go, what? start asking them questions. See, this is the thing I think we've got to learn to do is say, when someone asks you a question about Jesus or Christianity or pushes back on you, the first instinct is to go hard with another you know, response. And I think perhaps now it might be better to go and ask a question. Oh, why are you asking that question? What's going on in your life? Did you have a church background? Did you... All these sorts of things. Because there's an issue behind the issue for most people when you're talking to them about Jesus. Always. It's good to get some intel. Very easy to have the answers, but it's very, well, it's almost counterintuitive to go, you know what? Under the tip of that iceberg of their hostility, perhaps, there's a whole big lump. 90% of it's under the surface. That's common psychology, but it's also something we should use as Christians. So what's going on in their life that they're asking those sorts of questions? And you get this crazy guy, Russell Brand, enfant terrible. 
he said, the reason I wear a cross is because Christianity, and in particular, the figure of Christ are, it seems to me, inevitably becoming more important as I become more familiar with suffering, purpose, self, and not self, meaning death. Now, he's not a Christian. Surprise, surprise anyone? <laughs> um, but he's moved in a situation where he's started to ask deeper and deeper questions more and more focused on Christian things rather than just this vague spirituality that he started off with. And one of the things we'd have to say when we're sharing the gospel with people is perhaps 50 years ago, people were on minus three. You know, Christianity's zero, where they you know, give their life to Jesus. You know, plus ten is when they're playing music in church and going off to be a missionary or whatever. But people were at minus three and you could sort of step them through, well, you know you're a sinner and you know... They're minus 10 at the moment. And the journey to that might take a long time for some people. The framework of thinking certainly does. Now that's not to say that people can't just become Christian. They do. We started our church plant because a bloke who was uh, coming to... I, I was putting up a, a studio at the back of our house and the guy in the bobcat came around to clear the space. He said, oh, what are you doing here? I said, I'm putting up a studio to work from. He said, what do you do? You know, pastor of a church. Oh, that's interesting. I said, so what do you do? And he said, he'd come out from England. He said, oh, we live in Perth now. We moved to Florida, but we didn't like it, so we went back to England and then we moved to Perth. And I, I literally went in and said to Jill, wow, that guy who just cleared that is an English guy who moved to Florida and it wasn't good enough from the south of England. To, he went, I said... I don't know what's going on in his life, but he's got some big searching going on. And then I waited for the bill, because he said he'd send me the bill, and he didn't send me the bill. And about two weeks later, the bill arrived with a letter. He said, oh, sorry, we're a lot going on. We had a, we're having a baby and uh, some complications. And, but I've got questions about life. Do you think you could answer them? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought... Um, okay, come round. So he came round. I said, so, you know those introductory comments you want to gauge? So you're into spirituality, huh? And he goes, no. Nah. Okay, he said, I've tried everything else. If Christianity doesn't have anything for me, I've got nothing. Okay, you know, get out Romans. So I said, okay, really? Can't I convince you to take small steps towards Jesus? No, no. He <laughs> wanted to become a Christian, and he became a Christian there and there still a Christian. Some people are like that. He has searched everywhere. He spent thousands of dollars travelling to see gurus in Canada and it didn't work. And the minute he heard about Jesus, he wanted to know. Keep Jesus high on the radar in those sorts of conversations. And just some other got five minutes and then we'll have a break. I said this this morning and I've got a few more. It's easy to lean back when you're going to get a punch in the mouth, right? And Christians are kind of saying, let's just go a little bit quieter about being Christian or being church people. What did you do on the weekend? What was that? Yeah. Um, and when my son was learning, to, that's not my son, but when he's learning to skate and you're over there and then you get a drop in, stamp your foot hard, lean that way. When counterintuitive, right? Because everything wants to back. There's a Grand Canyon down there, four foot, and it looks terrible. 
sampling a lean mean. And he's also video of him leaning back a hundred times. It's hilarious. So the first time he leaned in hard, and I'm gonna go for it. It worked. Give it away. And I think as Christians in the moment when it's punch in the mouth time, you think, I don't want to lean in too hard. But it's a great opportunity. It's never more open, I think. I think we can lean into our distinctives, the fact that we are different. Here's a book recommendation for you I think is worth reading, The World Next Door by Peter Orr and Rory Shiner. So they write together. And it goes through the creed as to explain why they're Christian. They called it The World Next Door because there's a book called The Universe Next Door from about 30 years ago about how your neighbours might have a very different view of the world than you. But this is saying there's lots of people who have no idea what Christianity is about. Let's explain to it through what Christianity is about. Let's explain the gospel to them very distinctly, the things we believe. So I think lean into the fact that we have very distinct views. I've noticed people become Christian and end up in Eastern Orthodoxy. Because that's where they baptise your baby upside down 12 times in the name of the, all the apostles. And, you know, it, you've really got to own it. And <laughs> so I don't want us to sort of blamange our Christianity down to mean nothing. I want us to sing songs like we sang. I want us to read the Bible that way. Non-Christians can come, but we're saying this is very distinctive. This is something different. Lean into the history of what it means to be Christian in a culture where people feel like they've got no basis for believing anything and history is they don't even know it. People want something secure and older than the latest iPhone. I think lean into difference. Under the Dome was a series on TV, HBO series, about this hermetically sealed town that an invisible dome had come down over the top of it. And nothing went in and nothing went out. Most people think that's how the universe is put together. At the most, manifest to a cold, impersonal universe. But that someone would break in? That's the gospel. That the creator would break in. We believe something very different. We believe, as I said this morning, in a heaven above and a hell below and an earth in the middle and they leak. Things move between them. That's what we believe. The weirdest thing we believe is not that two men can't get married, even though that can be a hostile response. It's that one day Jesus will break through that dome and reappear. If you said that on the 12th floor of Ernst & Young tomorrow or Monday morning. We've got a live one up here in Sector G for, you know, get security and get them out of here. We want to lean into the things that we hold very differently and where our hope is coming from and let that shape our lives. And the last thing, and we sang about it, lean into destiny, where we're going. Our culture does not know where it's going. And if someone asks you for the reason for the hope that it's within you, tell them, but with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter. Right this. Christians are convinced by the hope of the resurrection and that our goal is to enjoy God in a perfected creation, 
the goodness of which will no longer be derailed by our sin. To enjoy God forever will not mean existing as a disembodied piece of gossamer floating in the ether playing a harp. The groaning of the planet will lead to the rebirthing of the planet, which humans front and centre. Most people are hoping that we all die off so the planet can keep living. If, if that's Extinction Rebellion's hope, Connor, that the humans are gotten rid of. That's why they'll never get a great following, because they just don't love humans enough. We do, because God does. The creation won't be renewed without us. Although we're not the centre of everything, God won't have the new creation without us. And we will enjoy him forever in it. Something dignifying about that. At Melbourne University, someone sent me a photo of the posters up around the university from Extinction Rebellion. And it said, we are beyond the airport. And if you're a young student walking around campus, doing a law degree or a maths degree to get ahead in your life and every second message says, what's the point? No wonder you're in despair or anxiety or confusion or denial. We don't believe that. We've got a hope. I think as we imbibe that, it starts to just leak out of us. Pray for each other in those situations. Ask each other how you're having those conversations. Ask if your hope is there. If it shows. I think that's an encouragement for us going forward. Even in difficult times. It's three o'clock. I'll stop talking. Go and have something, you know, that will uh, give life to your mortal bodies for half an hour. And then we'll have some questions. We haven't included the Q&A session at the end here. But if you want to think more about the things Steve has been talking about, uh, please check out Steve's two books. The first one's called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. His second book, which is actually new this month at time of recording, is called Future Proof, How to Live for Jesus in a Culture that Keeps Changing.